Hello, great minds. It's Tuesday, or maybe Wednesday, because I recorded this on my birthday and I don't know if I want to edit it or not. But either way, that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History as we get ready to chat about my favorite historical finds from my most recent travels to Firenze e Roma. That is Florence and Rome. So welcome to the show, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Zach DeBacco, otherwise known as Mr. DGMH, and today I have a couple of neat little stories to tell you about some of the history that I encountered while in Florence. Before that, we have to get one thing out of the way, though. The second catastrophe of Season 3 from the last round of shots. And to say that there's only been two catastrophes of Season 3 would be a gross understatement. That's right, spoilers, we fucking tied again. So we've found ourselves in another Cheever's Choice situation. So who will it be? Catherine the Great or Christina of Sweden? And will Mr. DGMH continue to be on the losing side? Turns out, yes. But it didn't come lightly, as Andy Cheevers conveyed to me in our private messages that he was quite surprised by the challenge of making this call. So what was Cheevers' choice? Quote, Christina really is an impressive figure, in many ways embodying the spirit of the age. Her interest in the theological issues of her day was much more than skin deep. Her commitment to celibacy emphasized her piety, and her deep commitment to truth as she perceived it. She had at least two spiritual passions, one with a friend during her reign, founding speculation concerning her sexual identity, and then with a cardinal later in life. Her conversion to Catholicism and consequent abdication in favor of her relative shows the strength of her character, even though there were certainly other reasons for it. To convert in such a tumultuous time while leading a major Protestant power shows her commitment to being her true self. That she recognized the impossibility of her situation and left the country shows her commitment to Sweden. But, as Sherry pointed out in another episode, Catherine is the great. I mean, she's not just good, her achievements are huge, I can't get past that. So, Catherine the Great is my choice. Boo, I lose again. But what can you do? As I pointed out, this was a tie-breaking vote, and, 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 and Andy Cheevers has decided that Catherine the Great is greater in this case. As Luke pointed out, we don't go against precedent on this show, so not only has Catherine won herself another crown of greatness, but she has also won herself a spot against Teddy and Louis in this season's Battle Royale. Well, let's get to it, whatever the hell this episode is about. Oh yeah, Florence. Now, I will get to the drinks later, as I don't want to spoil any parts of the story, but I will say that I had the most amazing time on this trip, the food, the wine, and surprising to most, the Italian beer, or birra. Every point was amazing. Mrs. DGMH planned a masterpiece of a trip, and I want to tell you all about it. But first, oh, what the hell, let's give it a try. Italians, please cover your ears. Ma prima è un po' di storia per te, un motive per bere per me. Yep, that's all I got in me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So I wanted to start this episode with a quick recap of my trip. As I mentioned in the last Chaser episode, my next stop was Italy. My wife and I spent nine amazing days abroad. Now, typically, we are Rome lovers, but since we had already spent time in the Eternal City, we figured we'd just do a quick day and a half stop in Rome. The majority of our time was spent in Florence, and my God, was it one of the most amazing, breathtaking, and unsurprisingly, intoxicating trips of my life. 
Like our first solo trip to Rome, we had visited Florence before, twice actually, but always as part of an educational tour. Funny enough, our first visit was all the way back in 2006, when me and my, unbeknownst to me at the time, future wife actually traveled with my high school French teacher to Italy, France, and Spain. My high school history teacher was actually on that trip too. I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. On that trip, we had a great three-day visit to Florence. We went to a discotheque, saw the Duomo, walked the Ponte Vecchio, we explored the city for the first time, we paraded around piazza after piazza, we saw art the likes of which I had never encountered. To this day, Benvenuto Cellini's Perseus with the Head of the Medusa, which I first encountered on this trip in 2006, and sits in the Piazza della Signoria, is still one of my favorite statues, a true top three piece of art. On that trip, I also bought a light camel-colored leather jacket, which I wore the last two years of high school. Plenty of looks given, comments made, but I didn't give a fuck. I loved that coat. My point, Florence held a lot of great memories for me, and I was excited to parade the streets once more in 2019, again as part of an EF tour. But now I realize that my travels with educational tours, specifically in this case EF, always seem to do Florence at a glance or a distance. Day trips to Pisa and Siena, walking tours of the big sites, the big famous view of the city from the Piazza Michelangelo, and I realized after this trip we never actually went in anything. And it can't be because of the price, because honestly, Florence was kind of cheap. And if that has been the case for you, change it. Hell, I will say it right off the bat, Florence is better, more beautiful, more entertaining than Rome. I will be having a few moments with Mr. DGMH on my trip stops over the next few weeks. That is, of course, before we get back to our Patreon chats on the bourbon reforms. But for now, I wanted to talk about two things. My new favorite stop in Italy and a piece of Florentine history that I came across for the first time. So let's start there with my absolute favorite place we visited on my trip, the Palazzo Pitti or Pitti Palace. So we visited a lot of museums and historical sites in Florence, but honestly, I was surprised by which one was my favorite. The Uffizi Gallery, home to an amazing amount of art, the Donatello exhibit allowed me to see the David I have always wanted to see, and the Medici Palace was like walking into one of my favorite TV shows. And in a way, Florence itself is just one big museum, a Renaissance time capsule waiting to be opened by any traveler, and don't even get me started on the churches. But my absolute favorite place to visit was the Palazzo Pitti, which has been hosted to kings and grand dukes and emperors, none of which were named Petey. But let's start with what the palace is. It's a palace. So, you know, people lived there. Although it didn't start this way, the palace was purchased by, surprise, the Medici family in the mid-16th century. Had things turned out differently for Catherine de' Medici, she might have lived there for a time. While a Grand Duchy of Tuscany existed, they ruled from the Palazzo Petey, and if anyone knew how to show off their wealth and power, it was the Medici. If the palace itself wasn't enough, its gardens give the great palaces of Europe a run for their money. I mean, this place is right up there with Versailles, the Royal Palace of Madrid, even El Escorial. And the Baboli Gardens are a large part of that reason. The palace sits at the bottom of a pretty steep hill for a hundred degree day. As one gradually ascends the garden's stairways, statues and fountains can be seen all around until you reach the secondary gardens at the summit of the grounds. From there, one can see a truly breathtaking view of the Florentine countryside and the surrounding cliffs, and then it hits you, you're only halfway there. After about a 12 to 20 minute walk, you realize that you can go another 12 minutes in a totally different direction. Not even Mr. DGMH had the energy for that, so parts of the Baboli Gardens will remain a mystery for now. The palace gardens were first commissioned by its Medici tenants, specifically Grand Duke Cosimo I's wife, Eleonora of Toledo. The gardens were expanded by later Habsburg rulers through the houses of Lorraine and Savoy. 
In the 1800s, Habsburg residency faced a little interruption as the palace was made the headquarters of a one Napoleon Bonaparte. During the years of unification, Florence served as a temporary capital, meaning that the Palazzo Pitti was for a short time the home of King Vittorio Emmanuel II. His grandson would actually transfer control of the property to the Italian state in 1919. But the gardens had been relatively open to the public since 1766. Unlike most European palaces that are famous today that sit on the outskirts of major cities or in another town entirely, this one is just down the street from the busiest bridge in the city, the Ponte Vecchio. It stands out like a sore thumb, a huge fortress full of both natural and artistic treasures that rest behind a truly impressive and intimidating structure. Yet we still have no clue where the Pitti comes from. Well, my dear listeners, that would be from Luca Pitti. Pitti was part of a wealthy banking family in Florence and a staunch ally of Cosimo de' Medici, the guy who made the Medicis de' Medicis. Pitti even launched a government coup in an aged Cosimo's name and was rewarded greatly for his loyalty. But as his power and wealth grew, he became more and more desiring of, well, more power and wealth. He came to see the Medicis as more of a rival than a friend. Constructing his palace was a way to outdo the Medici. But as I said, in the end, they bought his house, so you can probably figure out how that went for Luca Pitti, who would actually never see his great palace completed, dying in 1472. His descendants, however, would reside in the palace until it was purchased by that Medici Grand Duke, Cosimo I, in 1549. So that's a quick, slightly oversimplified tale of the Palazzo Pitti, a true gem of Florence. And if you ask me, it's one of the greatest. It was home to paintings of several great minds in their various connections. I saw paintings of Oliver Cromwell, Charles I, Philip II, Carlos V, and others that I have used in my classroom for years, the originals all residing in Pitti Palace, whose walls are now lined from literal top to literal bottom with masterpieces. And I honestly barely even knew it existed. Now, I would like to wrap this episode up with my absolute favorite historical find in all of Florence, a story that I absolutely fell in love with, but maybe a little sensationalized even for the employees that work there, because when I asked about it, they kind of laughed it off. So my wife and I spent hours, well, mostly her, but still, combing social media to find the best food, drinks, prices, and sites that Florence had to offer. In one short little article, we came across the so-called oldest pharmacy in the world, which just so happened to be in, yes, you guessed it, Florence. Too good to pass up, right? Of course it was. So on our last night in Florence, we rushed over to check it out. So is it true, is the oldest pharmacy while apothecary in Europe, even the world, in Florence? Well, yes, it appears to be. That is, if you stretch the definition of the institution's beginnings by a bit. Attached but not providing access to the grounds of the Basilica Santa Maria Novella, the monks of the church began making little spirits and elixirs all the way back in 1221. Now that's impressive and pretty old, even for Florence. Using herbs and alcohols to create remedies and pharmaceuticals for those in need in the city, the Dominican monks that started the whole thing have earned this establishment the title of the oldest apothecary in the world. The apothecary was actually founded in the last years of St. Dominic's life, the namesake for the Dominican monks who planted the seeds of this whole operation. I feel a special connection to this story as I was raised Catholic, grew up into a Christmas and Easter Catholic, and now just say things like, I guess you could call me a Catholic. But after eight or nine years of the hellacious torture that is catechism, my friends and I all got confirmed, which is a sacrament if you're Catholic and maybe Orthodox, I don't really know. The cool thing is that you get to choose a name. My friends mostly made jokes of it, choosing Polycarp, which sounds more like a Pokemon than a saint, or even Drogo, yet they missed Saint Ferrace. 
the patron saint of people with STDs, which is, which I have to say made me chuckle because when you read the name, it kind of sounds like fire crotch, which I can only imagine is how one might feel in that situation. Gladly, I cannot speak from experience. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but who really gives a fuck if I fall down a beaver hole or two? Remember, it is my birthday. So Saint Dominic, that's the one I chose. It is also my middle name, so in the Catholic Church, I would be known as Zachary Dominic Dominic DeBacco, also known as Mr. DGMH. Now, Saint Dominic must be pretty cool to be the namesake of an entire monastic, like at least as cool as Saint Francis of Assisi or Ignatius of Loyola. Turns out he started the order himself, seeing a need for a group to educate the masses. Saint Dominic himself seems to be a pretty neat guy. A young Dominic even once sold all his belongings to help the poor of Spain, catching eyebrows from his fellow theologians in the making. In response to their looks and scowls and questioning, he said, Would you have me study on these dead skins when men are dying of hunger? Hmm. Neat. He is the patron saint of astronomy and astronomers, but it's strange. He had nothing to do with either. It is rumored, however, that his mother saw a star shining on his chest at his baptism, and maybe that's the reason why he got this title. But as to why, that's all I got. But this does give me a brief moment to share my love of all things space. I don't really get a lot of science stuff, as I like to call it at school, but I love learning about outer space. So much mystery and unknown out there, it's just amazing, and all the JWST photos are truly awing. And I am officially terribly off topic. Back to the apothecary. A word I seem to spell wrong every single damn time that I type it. So the sale of elixirs boomed during the days of the Black Death, as the monks began using rose waters and other concoctions to treat Florence's sick and dying. But the big oh shit moment for me was when I discovered who one of the shop's earliest patrons was. That's right, you guessed it, Catherine de fucking Medici. She was gifted one of the apothecary's new perfumes, Aqua della Regina, or the Water of the Queen, a perfume specifically designed for her, and she brought this Florentine luxury to the French court, raising its popularity greatly. I have read that it was a quote, first-of-its-kind perfume that used alcohol as the base instead of vinegars and oils. And it has been said that quote, Catherine's patronage was the making of the place. Who knew? Catherine de' Medici, perfume influencer by day, poison serpent queen killer of Protestants by night. What is most shocking, though, is that this totally free piece of history has never been part of my tours in the past. It is visited by thousands of tourists and Florentines each day, and the current business still makes use of many of the same manufacturing techniques used by the monks that started the whole thing more than 800 years ago. The apothecary officially began operations as a retail business in the early 17th century and has pretty much continued ever since. However, it nearly faced its end in the 1860s when the new Italian state confiscated church properties. Had it not been for the quick thinking of the business's last monastic director, Damiano Beni, it may have ceased operations entirely. Before it could be seized, however, Damiano transferred the property to his lay nephew, whose descendants are still involved with the business today. In the 19th century, Santa Maria Novella's, quote, pharmaceutical spirits became all the rage in the U.S., and Alkermes, its oldest brew, was advertised as a way to revive, quote, weary and lazy spirits. And that brings us to today's drink. Yes, I bought one of the elixirs, specifically the one I just mentioned, Alkermes. And it was pretty interesting, so I will do a formal rating on it. In terms of taste, it's unique. It sits and feels like a syrup 
like a cough syrup textually, but it is rich and smooth. It may look a little like NyQuil, but it certainly kicks your ass at 35% alcohol. But there's nothing artificial about the flavors or aromas. It smells and tastes very authentic and real. Just the right amount of cinnamon, far better than any similar flavor made in the United States. Looking at you, Fireball, do better. Six points for tasting surprisingly amazing and strange, but in a good way. Price is fine, it isn't cheap, but the story, novelty, and taste are all worth it. I paid like 20 euros for a very small bottle, the bigger one I think was 35, and it's about the size of a small bottle of Jack Daniels. And I would totally buy it next time for sure. Four out of six points for price, as it is a really, really fucking small bottle. Return is hard. I would gladly buy it again. I just don't know how or when. Aficiona Profumo Pharmaceutica de Santa Maria Novella has shops in New York, LA, Tokyo, and now Miami, and maybe some other places too. At a glance, you can buy the perfume and creams online, but I can't seem to find any of the booze. And I must say I chuckled when one historian noted in a Smithsonian article, quote, For those who fancy themselves a modern-day Catherine de' Medici, the pharmacy produces a fragrance similar to the Water of the Queen. I can't say that was ever really Really my intent, but we did buy some hand cream, and maybe next time I might even buy their new men's cologne. But being a modern-day Catherine de Medici was never my plan. I will be back for certain, but the distance makes return at the very least a challenge. Five out of six points. If I get to go back to the apothecary, I will buy more Alkermes for sure. So there you have it. Alkermes leaves with a very nice 15 out of 18 points and five crowns. Worth every euro. Well, that's it. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider leaving the show a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at DGMH History, and be sure to join in the conversation over at the DGMH Facebook group. Plenty of fun chats had there. If you are all caught up in looking for even more DGMH or just love the show, then we hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to even more great content, including bonus psych and shots conversations, pregame chats, extra moments with Mr. DGMH, and now Cullen Chats China, where Cullen chats with me about China's rich history that I know next to nothing about, and finally, Pete Chats Portugal, where Cullen and I continue our chats, but now on the rich, forgotten, often ignored history of Portugal. Oh, and I should say, this month, there's a new series coming to Patreon at the historian's level, my take on the Thirty Years' War, in another moment with Mr. DGMH. So today we are raising a glass of Monk Elixir, a sort of tonic, I guess. I won't lie, I tried this for the first time while writing, and my half-shot has hit surprisingly hard. So to monks, they make my favorite beer, Trefontane, which I also enjoyed on my trip, they make these kick-ass elixirs, and that seems to be good enough for me. Of course, Chin Chin to Florence, a truly amazing city rich with history, art, and heavenly food, drinks, elixirs, churches, museums, and gardens. We should probably raise a glass to St. Dominic. Honestly, I really enjoy reading saints' lives. Interesting historical source for sure, and normally stories of genuinely good or decent people. I mean, he's my saint, the reason behind my father and grandfather's name, and astrology so fucking cool. And finally, to my wife, Jackie, aka Mrs. DGMH, who truly put together the trip of a lifetime and put up with all my drinking and history stories along the way. And I can promise you, a lot of both were done. Chin chin, my listeners, and cheers. Cheers.